Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. This is another episode of Bewildered, which is the podcast for people who are trying to figure it out like us. Yeah. Isn't it? How you doing, Marty? I'm okay. Yeah, better than okay. Life is good. How about you? Yeah, life's pretty good. I feel pretty good about life, you know, when you consider the alternatives. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, that's a wise thing. Yeah. So what are you trying to figure out? Oh, um, let's see. Well, for me, I'm trying to deal with a personality clash within our household. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. Is it me? What? (laughs) Is it me? (laughs) Because this is not like the right forum to start unearthing issues that you're having in our relationship no it's that we have this Mm two-year-old who is very excited to be communicating in language and who will sit at the dinner table saying to each of us in turn i love you and then we say back to her i love you but adam our whoops in case people haven't heard my grown son with down syndrome he um he won't say it. Adam's a sort of taciturn character, isn't he? Yeah, he's a man of few words. Yeah. He's kind of the Clint Eastwood. They told me he would not be that way. They told mm. me he'd be all emotional. People have the weirdest illusions about this. But he's very proper. Mm. And so Adam says, I love 
Ew. And he says, we all watch and wait. And sometimes we're like, she even prompted him a couple of nights ago. <laughs> Adam, I love Lila. But he wouldn't say it. He turned to her and said, I like that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not what you want to hear when you've just told someone I love you. No, no. But I, she's getting through to him and you were wounded as a result. Oh, my God. Physically wounded in the shoulder. This little girl is like her whole life's mission these days is about getting Adam to express affection to her, isn't it? Yeah, she's obsessed. Yeah. It's like he's this conundrum because everybody else in the house is like, oh, we love you all the time. And mm. Adam is like, hello. And that's all he said. He's like James Bond. He's a mystery man. So the other, the, and then sometimes she'll say hello, Adam, again, and he'll he'll say, not too many hellos, <laughs> not too many. So the other day, it got to the point where he was really being rude, and I know Adam never wants to be rude. So I thought it was time to tell him, you know, you you need to say good night. Mm. She gives us all a big hug, good night, and she touches Adam lightly on the shoulder, which is what protocol allows. <laughs> It's like you have to have a book of protocols for yeah. Adam like you do with the, the I was going to say the queen, but I mean the king now. The king. The king. Holy heavens. Anyway, as she was going up, Adam actually said, good night. And I think he might have even said her name, Lila, at which she became so overwhelmed with emotion mm. that she went into like spasms of ecstasy mm -hmm, mm -hmm, turned to you you were holding her i don't I know was. if you remember or I, you've repressed it i remember very clearly. turned her head into your shoulder the way babies do when they're feeling shy and bit you savagely yes she did there was a and you did make a sound <laughs> <laughs> i believe i might have even said a word or two, a choice word or two. It really hurt. Her passions, like, are strong. <laughs> Her emotions, like, that she had to channel through me in that moment were, like, intense. That man. would be, I think, you know, I felt that way when somebody says something and I'm really emotional, like, I can't hold the emotion in. What if we just bit when that happened? Dude. Since this kid was born, I have been having that reaction to her cuteness every single day. Even biting you? Her? No wonder. <laughs> Bite yourself. You didn't need one of those cones of shame you put on a dog. She keeps biting herself. I look at her yeah. and her little thigh rolls. I'm obsessed with her thigh rolls. Mm -hmm. Everything about her. It's been nearly two years. I have wanted to bite down on that baby for its <laughs> cuteness so often and I never have broken skin. And she... <laughs> I have I may scar from what she did to oh, me. Yeah, so I'm you're... just saying, okay, I may have decades of maturation and wisdom on her, but still I have behaved better than her. That's a good point. Also, it begs the question, maybe we, we should do another um, podcast on it. Why do we say that babies are so cute we want to eat them? Because that is a physical reaction. It's not a concept don't you, you have that so evolution Arr. is like okay you spend all your resources on this tiny helpless baby that can't even hold its head up and you love it so much that you want to bite it yeah yum wow darwin you well, got an answer to me for this but let's in let's, fairness like part of our design yeah. is that you can do without a limb or two <laughs> you know if if there was an 
if there was a moment where mummy got too overwhelmed with how cute you were and accidentally bit off your arm, I do threaten <laughs> to eat her toes every single day. You do. I've heard you say it. Um, oh, my God. She's going to need so much therapy. <laughs> yeah. We've got a fund. We've got a therapy she, fund. And she has that weird habit of, and this is not, uh, this is literally true. She'll take off your shoes, press her head to your toes and shout, more feet. It's so weird. I don't know if we've talked about this or not because it's just so odd the way she does this that it's almost too odd to talk about. It's like, did you have a past life on some other planet where they would like touch their foreheads to each other's feet and scream more feet? Or like just some obscure religious cult or something? Oh. She also is too comfortable wearing glasses. That's true. Nobody should be. I'm not that comfortable wearing glasses. so. Yeah, it's weird. Ah, so many mysteries, but we have yeah. to move on. So, Ro, what are you thinking about these days? What are you trying to figure out? Well, <laughs> this is completely unrelated to yours, mm. unrelated to our topic today. It's just something that's been going on in my inner life, which is that, um, and this is going to mean nothing to you, Marty, but mm. what I'm trying to figure out is why the relentless heterosexuality of hashtag van life now who's van hashtag van life hashtag van life (laughs) hashtag who is van (laughs) (laughs) so van life hashtag van life which i unfortunately learned about when there was a murder in a van but anyway it doesn't matter don't don't focus on that van death a lot of people (laughs) a lot of people there's this like subculture and it's mm-hmm. very Instagram friendly mm. where people are sort of live a little nomadic life and they get a van and they usually oh. um, strip it down and turn it into a little home. Oh. And it's lovely. And, you know, I do have a bit of a soft spot oh, for tiny places to you live You love in. tiny places. I love tiny places. I When I was a little small child, I used to climb out of my bed and go and sleep behind my um dressing table is that something you have we don't have that here but it has drawers you put clothes in it maybe a mirror on. oh a a dresser drawers yeah that kind of thing a chest of drawers that's what we call them Hmm. yeah it was like that and I would go and and like climb in behind that and sleep there when I was little and I ever since then or maybe from a past life who knows but I love like I could look at tiny houses forever I, I'm sorry. I'm still thinking about how far was your chest of drawers from the wall? Were you literally one inch thick? <laughs> I, I'm just imagining you sliding yourself like a piece of paper I between love a, a heavy so. armoire and the wall. The wall. All right. Since you want to get into the furniture layout of my childhood bedroom, I will tell you. <laughs> it was set up to like there was a corner of the room. Ah. And the dressing table was against the corner, thereby oh. creating a little triangle of space. Triangular space. Behind it. And I was oh. triangular at the oh. time, so it worked <laughs> <laughs> I was bipedal and triangular. <laughs> it was a confusing time. It was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> we were all having a lot of identity issues. Yeah, a lot of pyramids being sold. So okay, anyway. so tell me about this tiny house business. Oh, I just love tiny. I mean, they're sweet, right? And I, there's just something, I don't know how universal it is. It must be a lot of people have this thing that I have. It's like you have that ASMR mm, sort of susceptibility. Mm. I'm oh. really susceptible to the romance of the tiny house or the van life, hashtag mm. van life. And so 
<laughs> actually, I just remembered there's when we met yes. and I was um, I was staying at the ranch, mm-hmm. um, your ranch back in the day, back in California, yes. good old good old California good old days. California, it was awesome. But this is before we were together mm-hmm. and I loved being there so much and I was doing some work for someone else and I wasn't in the same house or anything but we were in the same general environs. Environs, as you may recall. As you may recall from an earlier episode. Oh, no. Feel free to inhabit my environs. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a disused chicken coop on the ranch and I had this ongoing fantasy that maybe if uh, I finished working for the people I was working for, I would be able to save up enough money to convert that chicken coop into a tiny house that you might let me live in. Do you remember that? It was made for chickens. Like, well, I'd renovate. I mean, the door was one foot tall. So cute. It was Aww. cute. It, it was, was compact. Cute. No chickens in it. No, there was a there was some like evidence of former chickens in it. But yeah, hmm. what like subsequent chickens? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not let's not get into that. Anyway, okay. look, it was full of black widows. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just some of my friends who <laughs> claimed it before me. Australian spider friends. Um. So anyway, there's. I love van life, but mm. one thing that. So all right, just to, to give you, I think everyone probably knows about hashtag van life, except you, Mother. Well, now X, I know because you don't understand. Anything. I mean, in fairness, listeners, she recently asked if we could reserve a hashtag for her next book. Like, can we buy it? Is it available? <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you, people travel around to these sort of nomads in a van. It's all very beautiful, which is why it's all over Instagram. And they open their van and look, there's a beautiful ocean and stuff like that. Mm. There's they're, they're happy nomads cruising around the world. Got it. So... They're all freaking straight. They're like that kind of subculture that's kind of like surfers, mm. you know, like they have that like they're, they've been swimming in the ocean and their hair is kind of kinky in the way it uh-huh. gets when it's yeah. salty. Um, that's the kind of people. I think that's all I need to say to describe the kind of people. And I'm like, why? Where are the gays? Like hmm. where are the gays in van life? Because like here's what I'm thinking. The dykes would be so good with the DIY aspect because part of, I tell you what, part of everyone's like genesis of their van life is Mm -hmm. that they strip down the thing themselves. Okay. Lesbians, tool belts, we all know. Um, I have a tool belt, not you. Yeah. You're the problem. It's it's really. You couldn't strip down a van. (laughs) (laughs) Not with that attitude. (laughs) Um, Yes. Busy hiding behind a chest of drawers in the wall. You look very attractive in your tool belt, can I just say? Thank you. <laughs> it's and all then, I wear to bed. <laughs> and then the gays, like the gay boys with the decorating. Like, God, I would just be in so, I probably am in so much trouble for the generalizations, but you know, guys, it's just, it's comedic, whatever. Um, where are the gays in van life? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Answers on a postcard. We're done. Let's figure it. Let's right. solve this this deep mystery. I think our listeners know. I think there's someone listening to this right now who's like, there are no gays in vans for this reason. And I think they're going to tell us. They're going to tell us. We're going to hear. Gaysinvans.com. Is it available? Let's buy it. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. I have a favour to ask. You might not know this, but... 
Ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears, all the bits that you could have a podcast in front of. That's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favorite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And uh, a review would also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Change, eh? Mm, It sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's get let's get onto topic. Shall Marty. we actually get a topic Shall happening? We? Shall we? Well, do you know what, Marty Moo? What? It's an exciting day because it's a Be Wild Files Day. Every day is a Be Wild Files Day. We just don't always observe it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sometimes we're non-practicing. So are we are now going to listen to a question from a listener. We have listeners in Japan. We have at least one listener in Japan. Isn't that awesome? Is this person in Japan or are they just from Japan? She says, well, I don't know, actually. It's not, it's not clear. We'll find out. But anyway... I'm so excited that you listen to our podcast. Here is Yoko. Hi, Rowan. Hi, Martha. My name is Yoko. I'm from Japan. As a Japanese native speaker and an English learner, language learner, I'm experiencing that language and culture are closely connected, intertwined. My question is, How can we be free from the culture while using the language and thinking in a language? Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Yoko. Yeah, first of all, she speaks better English than I do. So Mm. congratulations for that. But what an interesting question. I think this is probably one of our favorite questions that we've ever had. Like we were just sitting there, we listened to it for the first time. And we were both just like, ooh, <laughs> language and culture. Ooh. ooh, what do we think about it? What do we think about it? Well, I mean, I think it's true. Like I've heard, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a bilingual or multilingual person. Polylingual? Yes, you are. No, I mean, I've tried to learn languages. I've got little high school level scraps mm-hmm. of of this, that, and the other, but not really. And um, but people I know who are genuinely poly they speak uh, polyglot. They, those, those people they speak many kinds of things. <laughs> they have two sounds. It's very strange. They polyglots. Have, all right. 
Yeah. <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> um, they have said to me that they feel like they have slightly different personalities mm. in, in different languages, but I don't know how much of that feels like. So, like, it is is the culture somehow embedded in the language? Because I think to some extent it is. Oh, I absolutely agree. And there's a part of me trying so hard not to say polyglot uh, linguistic epistemology. I'm so sorry. No. Oh, it's a really good thing. No. It means that knowing and language no. weave each other, right? Epistemology is how we know things and language is. Yeah. So the whole idea that what we think, I'm so disappointed what we feel, in you right now. I'm so sorry. sorry. You're not angry. You're disappointed. I'll try harder. Anyway, there's a whole thing and a whole academic thing about how language and the way we know are interrelated. And I remember thinking about it and you've traveled more than I have. So I'd like to hear your observations on this, but I remember once going on my way home to America from Singapore, where I'd been going to a Chinese language learning center and my whole day was in Mandarin. Um, I stopped in France where I also speak a little, a little high school French, and watching television with this intense concentration that I had gained by sitting for five hours a day trying to understand Mandarin. And I realized that um, I, I, everything in me started to relax as French came into my, into my uh, body almost. Wow. And I was thinking about how people wonder why, you know, the French smoke and they eat butter and they drink wine and yet they live so long. And I'm like, it's have, you heard them? <laughs> have you heard them? I was speak? like, it's the language, man. It's like, it, it's the language of the heart. And Chinese is incredible. Like the artistry of Chinese is amazing, but it's not the art, the language of the heart in the same way French is. Mm. So I was going from this very perfectionistic, I've got to get this right sort of feeling mm. to like, oh, I'm, yeah, somebody bring me a croissant. It's you know? like the best, the best word in French, as everyone knows, is uh, and what you need to do mm. is you get your cigarette, you light your cigarette, you inhale and you go, uh, really? Because oh, in yeah. Chinese, uh, means hungry or evil. I don't know if I got the tone right. I never know if I got the tone no, right. No one does. No one does. I think that's actually a myth. I don't think there are tones. I think it's just an oh, elaborate hoax. I wish that were true. Do <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what's funny? I just realised that, you know how, so we're at the point now where if we want to say, if we're in the, our family together and we want to say something but we don't want Adam or Lila to understand it, we spell it, right? Mm. But. If you and I want to say something we don't want Karen to understand it, we'll use our crappy French. And we'll oh, yeah. and then if you and Karen want to say something you don't want me to understand it, you'll speak Chinese. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> we are divided by our uh, attempts at language. And if and if Karen and I want to say something and we don't want you to understand, we just use pop culture references. <laughs> And if Karen and I want to say something that you won't understand, we talk about anything that happened before 1990. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Where are we? Where? Uh, so, but the point is, yes. um, there's no question that language and culture are tightly interconnected, mm. like 
intimately connected. The way our brains know comes from the way we speak. Yeah, and there's different ways to understand the concept of culture as well because we sort of use it in a kind of derogatory way a lot of the time talking about the culture as in the forces of human socialization socialization that come down on us. But so much of culture um, is, is just a beautiful kind of connectedness of, of our psyches or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, well, the thing that people always say is that Eskimos have however many names I for think snow. I supposed to say Inuit now. No, it's back to Eskimo. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's back to Eskimo. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, and we were thinking about Yoko and, and how there's these concepts that thanks to the internet really, um, that we have from Japanese that we can now borrow from. And that's only because of the Japanese language expresses ideas that, um, Oh God, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, when I lived there for a summer, mm. I literally would fall asleep while studying Japanese, wake up with the the, with a book on my pillow and start studying again because mm. the beauty of that language and the and the way of thinking that goes with it. I know there are probably disadvantages that Yoko may be bumping into, but mm. oh my God, Japanese grabbed me by the soul in the way no other language ever did. Isn't it interesting how that happens and it just seems like an individual thing? Like I felt that with Spanish. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it all boils down to the past lives. Anyway, I wanted to say Shinrin-yoku. Oh, actually, can you say them? Shinrin-yoku. I don't say it. Shinrin-yoku. You say say them and say what they mean because we love them. It means forest bathing. It means going into the forest and allowing your whole being to be cleansed by the forest. And, you know, this is actually literally true. It's literally true that when you go into a forest, if you haven't been there, your cancer killing cells will triple in, I think, about an hour and they'll stay elevated for weeks afterward because we co-evolved with the pheromones of trees. So cool. They put us in balance. We kill them. (laughs) It's kind of the story of Western European civilization. Do Um, you think trees have a culture? I do. What's their culture like? Oh, my Yes, I, I actually have been studying this because someday I want to write a novel that involves this. Mm. And uh, there are trees, and this is this is not woo-woo crazy people on the fringe saying this. This is mainstream botany. They've discovered that trees are social and that they communicate and they have special friends and there are certain big trees. Now, when you have a tree that needs lots of sunlight, it, the babies die out because they're shaded by the adults, right? Mm-hmm. And pine trees usually grow up and take over everything because they can grow in the in shade. Mm-hmm. So there are big deciduous trees that for some reason are more willing to share the sugars that they create with the saplings that grow around them. So they will actually shunt their sugars to these smaller trees, which can then grow up even though they're not in the sunlight. And these are called the mother trees. And <laughs> when so they, beautiful. when the mother tree gets old and loses her leaves or, you know, breaks down to a stump, those saplings will feed their sugars back to her so that she stays alive even without her own leaves. Okay. That just makes me cry. Me too. I can't handle it. But I also have to say that you said they had special friends. Mm. 
and I just thought, oh, <laughs> special friends, friends, friends. <laughs> you want to share some bees? <laughs> <laughs> you want some of my sugars? I'm gonna, sh- I'm gonna shunt my Come sugar. On, sugar. <laughs> Don't take sugar from that stranger. Well, that is all very interesting, and I think we should do one on the culture of trees a whole episode one day. Which leads to the other word we wanted yes. to talk about. Which is, to me, a very, very powerful one. But oh, I need it's a you beautiful one. Komorebi. Komorebi. It's, it's, sunlight, it's the effect of the sunlight coming through leaves. Komorebi. <sighs> is that not gorgeous? Yeah. I have, I have like a weird obsession with the way that the, um, the green glows when sunlight's yeah. coming through it. Yeah. yeah. And having a word for it. I, I remember reading that and just walking around going, and another, I, it's not just Japanese. When I was um, learning a little about horseback riding, which I know about as well as I know all the languages besides English, that is not. Um, we have this wonderful instructor named Katya from Germany. Katyaku. Hi, Katya. Hi, Katyaku. Um, and I was on the horse being all rigid in the way I am and yet still clumsy. It's, <laughs> it's incredible how I can be so extremely tense and yet so unbelievably pratfallish. Anyway, um, Katya very gently in her wonderful way told me, taught me the word losgelassenheit. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And it means letting looseness, like literally loss, like loose going. Yeah. And the process of becoming loose. Yeah. The process of becoming looser. And in that word, she taught me a different way to sit on a horse. Mm. Before I knew that word, I was sitting in a certain way. And after she taught me that word, I sat in another way and it oh, felt more God. natural. It was, it really made me wonder what I'm missing by not knowing more words. Do you think horses have a culture? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Marty takes long breath. <laughs> Yeah, I think they do, but I, I, I will just stick with trees for this podcast. My dear friend, Gronya, went, uh, she and I studied French together and she went on exchange to France when we were at high school. And we just used to have so much fun with language things back and forth. And mm-hmm. um, there's there's an expression in, in French, which is c'est pas la peine, which just basically means it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth it to mm-hmm. do that. So it's we not just worth the pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and we would just always say, it's not the pen. Pronounce the pen. <laughs> it's not the pen. Uh, do you want to go to that? No, nah, it's not the pen. And we would, we would write it because of course <laughs> in, in the pre-digital age, a lot of communication that was done at high school was done by passing notes in my school anyway. So we would have to write it P-E-N. It's not the pen. Ah, that's so funny for someone who speaks French and English. <laughs> yeah, but it was our little. It was it's our so little. Sweet. We were making us a, a little third language yeah. between us. That was like part of our little two-person culture. Didn't you have another one too? The two of you. Oh, the the casserole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because um, there's a. I don't actually know. This is embarrassing, but there's a. Um, there's stars together in the sky constellation yeah. um, that you can see in Australia and, and it looks like a source. <laughs> <laughs> and we would just, and, and the, oh, this is so, it's so stupid. It only is funny if you're us and you're 16, <laughs> 17. But we would say, 
um, we would say <laughs> doesn't even matter. Don't even worry about it. We would say casserole instead of saucepan because casserole, la casserole is, is French for the saucepan. And she wrote me a postcard once when she was in France and she said, Les nuits, je peux voir la casserole. And, and <laughs> at night she could I can see, see the saucepan. At night I can see the saucepan. And it was like. That's so sweet. Yeah. See now casserole. Next time I eat a casserole, I'll be eating stars. Oh. Yeah, that's what the Beautiful. guy said, that the monk said when he discovered champagne. There was a dude in a monk place. I guess a monk. <laughs> <laughs> Come to think of it. And he went downstairs to get some wine and there was a bottle that wasn't quite the same as the others and it had turned into bubbly. And he drank a whole bottle and then he came up drunk as a skunk and told the other monks, I have been drinking stars. Oh. And at night. I can see the casserole. <laughs> and then he ate all the casserole. Yeah. Shocking. I am not surprised. So we, we might have strayed a little bit away from Yoko's question at this mm. point. Um, what does the culture say about this? We always go, well, here's the culture. And yeah. we often, you know, to put another note on that, often we mean Western European dominating the world, like post-enlightenment culture, which is basically what's forming American society, as yeah. we sit and speak, and, and many other places around the and world. And like so. the kind of digital hands and fingers that it now has Yes, um, yes. But, yeah, I immediately, because I studied politics, I immediately go into like the polit like language and the political oh, culture, yeah. you know, with that. Ooh. And I, I thought of um, the novel, George Orwell novel 1984, mm -hmm. which has a whole thing about like it's that sort of dystopian thing and you've got the the party the ruling sort of autocratic party um has has created its own language in ah. order to like effect mind control on the citizenry and mm -hmm. um you know and it's and the idea being as oh my gosh i just went sideways into um Turkmenistan <laughs> and the <laughs> the Turkmen he's dead now thank god but he there, there was a horrible dictator in Turkmenistan who named or renamed all the days of the week after like himself and his mother and rena <laughs> renamed I'm sorry I shouldn't laugh People renamed suffered. renamed the word for bread like it is interesting how there's an instinct that the names for things right oh, are, so are a way of controlling the populace and you know, so it's like in 1984, the idea is that if the party can control thought, it can also control action. Mm. And there's an amazing book, which I think I've probably talked about before on this. I'm obsessed with it. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff. Mm. Lakoff? Lakoff? Mm. I never know. Anyway, George. Old George. And <laughs> it's it's about how like a big part of what <laughs> sort of right-wing think tanks do in contemporary American politics is like come up with language for stuff hmm. and if you he's basically saying if you can give language to um your values or within a debate then you will control the argument because and the example I always give is you know, the Democrat has to come out and say, well, it's not exactly a death tax, but mm. then you've had to say death tax. <laughs> right, right. You know, and and so I definitely think that language can be a tool of some some kind, like for political agendas. It, this is ringing so true to me because when I was studying Chinese, the Cultural Revolution was in full swing. Right. And all our textbooks were 
condoned by the Chinese government. And you could literally feel them. I mean, it was not subtle. Like mm. I learned the word for comrade before I learned the word for husband or wife, right? Wow, yeah. But the biggest Did you thing- have to like ref- like say hello comrade so yeah. and so? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. And um the thing that was really there were all these stories as it got more advanced and it was not just, you know, um what was his name? Zhang Yuwen, that was the hero, the hero of all the stories. Zhang Yuwen, he, he wasn't just buying a sweater. He was actually, her comrade Zhang was burnt over 90% of his body. These were the things we had to memorize and learn. He, was, he fell into a pit and was burned over 90% of his body. Western medicine could not save him, but the Chinese doctors came in and they said, don't die. And Zhang Yuwen said, I cannot die. Iron needs me because they were trying to gather iron to build weapons at the time. So everybody was supposed to find their iron oh things God. and put them in a smelter. This is the type of dialogue that I was memorizing Wow! to learn the language. Mm-hmm. And that's why when I went to France, I was like, oh, this feels so much better. <laughs> yeah, because it's there it's just like, je porte mes blue jeans à la discothèque. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, I just want to add that I went on and learned more Chinese and fell in love with the poetry and beauty of that language. But I got to say, when the the Communist Party was really cracking down during the Cultural Revolution, I felt like my mind was put in a vice by the way I was taught vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. I mean, it's sort of like, so Yoko was sort of saying, can we be free from the culture if we still use language and mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. in individual languages. Right, right, right. So I think that, um, here's what I think. There's a saying, uh, a person with one watch, one clock, always knows what, what time it is. A person with two clocks is never sure. Mm-hmm. I think I've said that before on here because what it means is that I think we are encased in the language we learn as children. Mm. But if you learn another language, even if you learn the language of another person's heart or maybe an animal's language or something. Or someone's love language. There you go. Hello. You are aware that language is arbitrary. You're aware that there are two sounds put on the same thing, but neither one of them is actually the thing. They're just mm, the sounds chosen to make that thing. To and that represent means the thing. It's always being made. And so you can mm. step outside in and say, I can use this as a tool. I no longer have it as my world. I see it as a tool. So I step away from it. And I think that you, I think Yoko is, she certainly freed herself to see Mm. that language was forming her brain. And I think the moment you've seen that, you're in a part of the brain that is not formed by the language. It's formed by your own internal experience in the world. Yeah. I actually wonder, like, so you and I, come from different countries but we share the same like mother tongue I wonder if if two people who have different languages can like communicate more deeply Hmm. than like because you you bring a richness of of different perspectives Hmm. you know and you could say well I so like do you think we can see and think and perceive beyond the limits of our own language like did I really know about 
the how much how I felt and how I believed in the power of the sunlight in the leaves before I knew that there was a word for it in Japanese? Mm. Or do I need to encounter the Japanese imagination and poetry in order to really grasp the beauty of that? Oh, that's so interesting what you're saying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna try to stop. Neurology, I couldn't help it. Um, you're talking about the difference between the left and right sides of the brain. And the left side of the brain does language almost always, okay? So almost all your verbal capacity is in the left hemisphere of your brain. The only place the right hemisphere will come in and play with language uh, is poetry, jokes, and songs. Hmm. So what you're talking about is the rigid captivity of being in the left hemisphere. Here's something I've been yammering about sorry guys, it's just true. Read books. It's amazing. The left (laughs) hemisphere of your brain, unlike the right hemisphere, sees limited things, but it is absolutely certain that it's right and that it knows everything there is to be known. The right side of the brain is like, whoa, relationships between things. Everything's always changing. That's just a mouth sound. How bizarre, you know, Mm. and it can't really talk, but it's out wandering. It's so weird that it has no language yet. It has a Valigo accent. It's wild. (laughs) But I honestly think that poets and songwriters and, and can go out into the wildness beyond culture in their brains, into the wild right side and connect things that are that have not been connected in the language so far and and create word images oh my god yeah that take us out of all language and into a shared um experience of sensory and emotional things yeah they like shunt when you have like an amazing poet um poem by like john o'donohue or someone like that like Mm -hmm. where you and it just the words are truly the vehicle not the at two at an emotional state. I find that the most extraordinary thing with poetry. Yeah. For some How reason. Does it do that? It's like coding or something. I'm remembering a phrase from, um, oh, who is the road less traveled dude? Frost, Robert Frost. Mm. This cha- I learned this poem when I was like nine and it changed my entire life. It, it's a long poem, but it ends. And when the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may choose something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. Oh, wow. And I, I remember feeling that, and I'd been bullied at school that day or something, and so the mob was swayed to mm. carry praise or blame too far. And I remember th- thinking about the connection with the stars mm-hmm. and letting it stay in my mind. And I was out past language, but language took me to the place where I could take off. Yeah, and what's interesting actually is that it's not a star. It's something like a star. It's, That's right. It's looser than a star. It's it's over in the right hemisphere then because it's just like it just wants the suggestion of the image. It doesn't want to say I'm absolutely right. It's this. Yes. That's true. I hadn't it's thought gentle. of that. And I think maybe that's what we have to do. Whatever our mother tongue is, we have to be gentle with the minds that are trussed into these little categories called words. Mm -hmm. And we have to say something like, and that's something Mm -hmm. I actually love about Japanese is you don't say, you think this, you say, you think this, I think. Like it's, it it softens things a lot. It also puts people in incredibly rigid hierarchies because you have to actually use different verbs depending on whether somebody is your socially ranked inferior or or superior. Right. Um, Yes. 
hard um, <laughs> and very vertical. It's mm -hmm. like there is a place in society for you and you know that place. Mm -hmm. And um, English is much more of a law school lesson height language, like whatever world, especially Australians. Goodbye, Mike. What's that thing that that guy said to the prime minister or something? The uh, uh, um, what was it? It was like, oh, come on, mate. That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that was a journalist <laughs> speaking to the prime minister. Oh, come on, mate. You know that's bullshit. That's bullshit, mate. Come on. Yeah. So, yeah. That, it's so interesting because I love language, but I love to fall into it. And I love people who use it as a medium of the imagination. And that is, I think, something that grows the more languages you learn. Isn't there something about, um, you know, like how you, as you form a culture, you'll also form a language? Like, yes. like us, our family stuck in our house through the pandemic yes. and lockdown, we all started talking weird in the same way. Yeah. Right. Like for a long time, we only used the word, um, we always put the verb do or did in front oh, of whatever yes. other verb we had. Like I did see that yesterday. Yes. Oh, you, you did see it? Yes. I did move it somewhere. That's right. <laughs> and I didn't even notice we were doing that until someone said to us like, what, 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 what are that? you doing? We were like, oh yeah. And the phrase, I will tell you, I am going to do this now and I will tell you for why. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's one <laughs> oh. of your things. Yeah, I do think, and and there's something that becomes intimate between people who have their own language mm. that, that's separate from everybody else's. And it's, I, I remember reading that this is why there's no special culture for people of different abilities, unless that dis, that different ability is hearing. Hearing mm. loss creates sign language, which is very, very different culturally from mm. like spoken language. Mm. And for, for that reason, there's an, there's a tight um, sense of belonging, or so I've been told, among people with that language I that wonder, we don't share. I wonder if you are in conversation in sign language, because there's so much uh, possibility for expressiveness, do you like what do you think about that left right hemisphere thing? Like, do you think there'd be more right hemisphere oh, in sign language than absolutely in because just speaking English? Yeah, movements of the body, those are all on the right. Yeah. Uh, right. And and nuance and the relationships between objects and stuff. So I I my younger sister once um had a job at this school for people for the deaf. I don't know if that's the word anymore, but they that was what it was called at the time. Yeah. And she was watching two people in the audience and they were having an argument. And as their gestures got wilder and more frenetic, one of them signed to the other, calm down, I'm not blind. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So yeah, yeah. I, this is all very, I love Yoko's question because it makes me think differently about my own life yeah. and about how I remember saying to that same younger sister of mine, we should invent words that are just, let's just make up a word. Yeah. And when, so we made up a word that meant when someone's coming over and your place is a mess and you have to make it look tidy on the surface, but like shoving everything under the bed and into closets. Yeah. And the word we decided on was gabugliek. 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 Study it, learn it, come into my world row. Okay. <laughs> I used to enjoy a Melbourne band in my teen years that was called Spudafugaha. Spudafugaha. Mm-hmm. And What's the name of the band? Spitafugaha. Spitafugaha. I wonder how they're doing. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they're gabugliacking away. 
I bet they are. <laughs> so I think that we need to talk a little bit about how to figure it all out. Oh, gosh, yes, we do. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. Let's do that. So here's what I think. And I, I sort of feel like we've almost been groping our way towards it in this conversation is that I think there's an inclination when we think about these kinds of things to see language as something that we receive from the culture because that's almost what it feels like. Hmm. But I think that if we bring the right attitude, like you and your sister and Gabugliak, Gabugliak, that language is actually something that we can wield creatively mm. between mm. humans as an expression of our true nature. Like we we don't need to receive language. We are language so, creators. Yes. In one way of looking at it, it creates the way we think. And if you flip it, then the way we think creates it. So you move from, oh, I'm going to let the language form my thoughts to, I'm going to find thoughts outside of language. And then and then force language yeah, to, to fit it. Yeah. Yeah, like like poets do. That's yeah. kind of what poetry is, right? Yeah. And I love your mom, who's a brilliant writer. She always says we should live like life like a poem. Yeah, and that is exactly, I was just thinking about that too. That's I exactly love that. It. And, you, and, you know, psychologically, it's incredibly powerful. There's good research to show that my, I had a former therapist. She's passed away now, but she did her PhD on the use of language and depression. And there are all these studies that show that if people just stop using the the phrases, I have to, and I can't, and instead use words like I choose to, I will, I won't. Mm -hmm. That's in Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Um, I think Caesar says, go tell the council that Caesar uh, will not come. That I, that I cannot is false, that I dare not falser still. No, go tell the council, Caesar will, will not. not come. Oh, that's so good. I know, that's authority. So when people stopped, they were being treated for depression and they had a group that was on meds and a group that had cognitive behavioral therapy and then this other group that just stopped using, I have to and I can't. I can't come, I have to go to my mother's party to, I won't be going, I choose to go to my mother's party. And that group, the group that shifted language deliberately, came mm-hmm. out of depression further and faster and for longer than both the other groups. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Talk about turnarounds because mm. this is like a, a great example of wielding language creatively to me to yeah. actually like it can change us and it can change beyond us. Yes. So I love the work of this spiritual teacher named Byron Katie. And her whole way of operating is that you take a thought that causes you suffering and you work with it. And in the end, 
the opposite, the exact grammatical opposite of your worst, most frightening thought is basically your next step to truth and liberation. So um, I remember the first time I did it, I was, I remember my thought was, um, my, I'm mad at my knee because it won't let me work out. And I turned it around to, I'm mad at my knee because it won't let me work in. Ooh. And all of a sudden I went, oh, I'm supposed to be working in, not out. Oh, I get it. And then another time I was taking a stand against something that I thought was horrific in the world. And I'd written a book about it. And I kept having the thought something terrible is going to happen to me because I wrote that book. And it turned around to I'm going to happen to something terrible because I wrote that book. That's not a sentence that would be used in standard English, but it smashed my mind open. It put me in a, in a place of, oh, I'm no victim. You know, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and people can do whatever they want back to me. But by God, I'm going to be myself no matter what the pressures are. I've never thought about turnarounds this way, but you're actually smashing language by finding no, it they don't always smash yeah language, not all of them work but yeah. often some of the most powerful are ones like the two you just listed where um language like you're almost like pulling it apart and reforming yeah. it into something new to show you something yes. you know in your own psychology and it's like brains and language are just oh, like this big deal. these weird two machines that work with each other right yeah. and yeah. i'm going to happen to something terrible is just the most amazing sentence and another one just quickly i think this will really ring true for a lot more people out there is when you're dealing with a narcissist mm. And you just think, oh, he never thinks about anything except himself. He never thinks about anything, anybody except himself. And one of the ways people have turned that around is, oh, I, I never think about anything but, but myself. Oh, yes, I've got to be more self-giving, more self-effacing, more. And they give themselves over to the narcissist. But the real turnaround is, I never think about anything but himself, mm. which is not standard English. But it's exactly how you end up relating to a narcissist who's ruling your life. And that's where you get the freedom. Oh, I have to stop obsessing about him and live my own life. So that's another way. I like that one. We should probably say if you are interested in this, go check out the work and do like you, you mustn't just do the turnarounds because to yes. get the really transformative power of the work, you need to go through all the steps yeah. that Byron Katie lays out and you can you can get all that online really easily yeah. and it's amazing. But don't just... Because we're we're making a very obscure yeah, kind we're of jumping point right using to the that, end. Um, but yeah, do it all, do it all. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. It's um, about taking apart the trap that a thought has put you in linguistically and breaking the language so that you can break the thought. That's it. That's yeah. exactly it. Oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? <sighs> yeah. I think like before we go and leave this delicious topic, I want to talk a little bit about naming things because I feel like what I want to say to Yoko in terms of culture, nature, language is, is just how deeply language can, oh, what am, how am I, I'm not sure how to say this. This is one of those, um, my right brain, my right hemisphere is trying to find a way to put language to a um, idea and I don't know how to do it, but it's about, 
um, true names is what I want to talk mm. about and about how um, there's a lot of stuff in magic. I thought it was, I only knew this through Ursula Le Guin but, um, and her Earthsea novels, but Marty was saying that, that the concept of having a deep true name mm-hmm. is, is quite a, um, a common one. Yeah, and many, many cultures around the world. If you know someone's real name, there's a certain connection. There's a certain power. power you can have over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so people are taught to, in many, many cultures, to guard their real names um, with their lives. And we've talked before um, about naming things and there's a certain, like, giving a name to something you're doing that's countercultural or something that you believe that's countercultural or something and there's almost like you're reclaiming something language which could be a tool of the culture but you're reclaiming it as mm. a tool of your nature i love that and i just think let's always be free to give names to our what our nature that. does like it's almost like what i was just trying to do where i couldn't find words it's like we are part of our challenge as we escape a mainstream culture and build something build a life that feels true to our nature is we're going to have to be reaching across our brain hemispheres mm. from the place where we know in the right hemisphere to the place where we can name in the yeah. left hemisphere let's call it name imagination let's call it gaboogly boobity gadoo that's your t- <laughs> <laughs> You have no idea what we just said to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Great one. Oh, my God. There was a pun in there and everything. This is really bad. All right. Okay. Now, from the ridiculous to the sublime, you were reading me this Ursula K. Le Guin quote, and I wanted you to read it. Yeah, I'm working working on one of my Wild Inventures newsletters this week, and I had looked up this quote about names and language from the incredible incredible Ursula K. Le Guin from A Wizard of Earthsea and she said this and I want to say it to you. My name and yours and the true name of the sun or a spring of water or an unborn child are all syllables of the great word that is very slowly spoken by the shining of the stars. There is no other power, no other name. Oh yeah, mic drop Ursula. And stay wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun... Please rate and review and stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need 
a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think. And the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.